0: Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is When It Mattered. When It Mattered is a podcast on how leaders deal with and learn from adversity. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. My guest today is the renowned physician, author, and journalist, Dr. Lisa Sanders, She's Associate Professor of Internal Medicine and Education at the Yale School of Medicine. Many of you know Dr. Sanders from her two globally popular New York Times columns about medical mysteries, Diagnosis and Think Like a Doctor. The diagnosis column inspired the hit Fox television series, House MD, for which Sanders served as a technical consultant. And now, a new Netflix New York Times series, also called Diagnosis, showcases Sanders using global crowdsourcing to help diagnose and solve eight medical mysteries.
1: Informally getting a second opinion is standard practice for doctors, but you're sort of limited by who those doctors are. You know, I mean, who you have access to. And I thought crowdsourcing would allow us to have really the widest possible reach. Also, I thought it would give us an opportunity to let people besides doctors weigh in. You know, there's lots of ways to know things.
0: Sanders' new book, Diagnosis, Solving the Most Baffling Medical Mysteries, is a compilation of 50 stories from her column. Dr. Sanders, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for inviting me, Chitra. You majored in English in college at William & Mary, and you wrote for your school paper, The Flat Hat. And after you graduated, you became a television news producer. So what prompted you to give up television and go to medical school?
1: Well, you know, I loved television and I loved uh, the news business. But one day, and it happened over time, you know, nobody really turns on a dime, no matter how they tell the story. But so one day I was out with the correspondent that I usually worked with. Bob Arnott, or at least I worked with him for years, Um, and we were doing uh, a story about whitewater rafting, and suddenly he disappeared from the the television monitor where I was looking at what we were filming. Um, And we looked around and found him on the banks of this river, pulling this elderly woman out of the water. He pulled her out and laid her down, and then he did something that I had really never seen except in TV dramas, he started doing CPR, chest compressions, you know, uh, breathing, uh, you know, mouth to mouth resuscitation. And after less than a minute, she turned her head to the side. She coughed, turned her head to the side. A ton of water came out of her mouth and she woke up. She sat up, she was fine. And to me, that was just amazing. I had never wanted to be a doctor. It it was not something that was on my mind. Um, I don't come from a medical family. And so it had never occurred to me that maybe I would ever want to be a doctor. But when I saw Bob bring this woman back from death, really death, I thought, wow, you know, I'm never going to do that. And it had never occurred to me that I wanted to do that, but it did sort of plant the idea in my mind that I would like to do that. And so years later, a couple of years later, I thought, well, maybe I will go to medical school.
0: And I did. So so now you're in medical school and you're learning uh, the art and science of diagnosis. How did you start to evolve your views on, on this te- technique of diagnosis and, and what were your initial takeaways about it? Well, you know,
1: I because I had worked with Bob, who was a doctor. I worked with him for you know four or five years. Um, I felt like I sort of got medicine. I had covered it um, for years, and so I, I I didn't feel like I knew what doctors knew, but I sort of understood how medicine worked. And the first two years of medical school are you sit in a classroom, you listen to lectures, they tell you all the stuff you really need to know, or you cut open bodies in in uh, you know anatomy but it has nothing to do with patient care. And then in your third year, you actually spend time with doctors doing what doctors do. And on my internal medicine rotation, I went to this meeting that everyone goes to, everyone in training and everybody who's in an academic medical center goes to called, in my institution it's called resident report and in other institutions it's sometimes called morning report. But at the heart of this meeting, Is a a patient whose case is presented to we the learners the same way it was it presented to the doctor who admitted this patient? So it starts off with what we call the what we now call the chief concern, which we used to call the chief complaint. That is, why did the patient come to the hospital? And then. We hear what their story is, as they told it, and the additional information in their past medical history and the physical exam. And we, sitting in that room, hear about the patient's patient's story as it came to the doctor who saw them. Patients don't come with a diagnostic label on them. And... Often, you have to put everything together to figure out what's going on, especially if they're sick enough to come to the emergency room. I mean, sometimes it's not hard. You know, a guy comes in, he's in his mid-50s, he has crushing substernal chest pain, and he's drenched in sweat. And you think, this guy's probably having a heart attack. So sometimes they're easy, but often it's a, it's, it's a puzzle. It's a, it's a mystery that has to be solved. And so I didn't know that. You know, I thought that diagnosis was like math. Four times six is always 24. So fever and a rash is always fill in the blank. But it turns out it's not. It's not always one thing or the other thing. There are a lot of possibilities, and you have to figure out which is the right one. And that was different. I
0: never knew that. And and you also said which i thought was very interesting that writing up these diagnoses was like an art of storytelling and 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 that's what you were doing you were you were finding out and telling the story of the patient how did you get from doing that in these medical reports to writing and writing and telling stories for the new york times
1: well of course like so many things in life, at least in my life. Luck had a huge uh, role in this. Um, One of my acquaintances uh, had recently gotten a job at the New York Times Magazine, and he was a young guy. He called me um, because I was literally the only doctor he knew. And so he said, Lisa, what kind of stories can doctors write? And I'm like, oh, well, we write this one story, almost every day and it's a great story it's a mystery story it's a detective story it's called it's a history and physical that's what it's called in the medical jargon but really it's the diagnostic dilemma that's presenting being presented to us for us to solve and figure out so that we can figure out what the patient has so that we can know how to treat them and what should happen next and so my friend paul tuff uh, a wonderful editor and now a wonderful writer you know was like mildly interested it was a sales job on my part i sent him copies of the new england journal and mayo clinic proceedings because these this these kinds of stories they're what doctors tell each other they're the stories we converse in they're the, they're the way we think really you know um a good friend of mine uh Catherine hunter Wrote a fantastic book called Doctors' Stories. And she made the argument this is like, I don't know, 25 years ago. She made the argument that the way doctors communicate and even understand medicine is through stories. And so that's what I tried to sell to Paul is that this is the story of medicine, really, or the story at least of diagnosis. And so he finally, uh, I was finally able to persuade him that that was the right. Uh, That was the right way to tell the story. And I wish I could say he immediately said, you are a brilliant, drop what you're doing and start writing this column right away. But he didn't. He said, thank you very much. And then he called uh, what I consider a real Dr. writer. And a few months later, I heard from him again. And he said, you know, it's not really working out with uh, this real Dr. writer." So, Would you like to give it a shot before we just give up on it? I'm like, yeah. (laughs) You know, with my husband sitting next to me, encouraging me, you can do it, Lisa, you can do it. So I said, yes. And uh, he said, great. Can you turn something in on Monday? It was Thursday. Obviously, this was a trauma for me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What was your first column? Do you remember?
1: Oh, I'll never forget it. Uh, It was a patient that I had seen. When I first started, all of them were patients that I had seen. It was a patient that I had seen who had Munchausen's. She presented with, uh, she, she was a young woman who had a seizure disorder that had been diagnosed um, and she took anti-seizure medicines. But she presented with uh, tonic-clonic seizures, even though her anti-seizure medicine was at a normal level. So she was brought in after being, uh, after having a witness seizure in a restaurant. And we were trying to figure out why she would be having these seizures when her anti-seizure medicine, which had taken, you know, had been fine for her for years, according to her, um, wasn't working. Uh, So it turned out, so we changed her anti-seizure medicine, and we were going to discharge her. Although I have to say, the, the neurologist, When he the first after his first encounter with her after he first went in to see her he came out and he said these are pseudo seizures she doesn't she she has a seizure disorder but she's not having real seizures now these are fakes I'm like oh that's impossible this woman she's so distressed but uh, the day before we were going to discharge her I went in to tell her that we were going to send her out with this new medicine and she was like fine and then overnight. She became extremely ill. She developed a high fever. Her blood pressure dropped, suggesting that she had a, an infection in her bloodstream. We sent blood to the uh, lab to be evaluated and we transferred her to the intensive care unit. And the lab called me right away, which is very unusual, uh, called me right away and said she has multiple gram negative organisms in her blood. There is really only one thing that causes that. And that's if you get stool in your blood. And there's really only a couple of ways you can get stool in your blood. Either you have something ruptures in your intestines, but she had no abdominal pain, nothing, or you contaminate your own IV site, which is what she had done. She, of course, denied it, but so that was my first column. I'll never forget her as a patient or writing her column.
0: And that must have been scary in a way, right? If a patient's lying to you and which is what Munkhausen's is, right? They're faking illness. Uh, How do you, how do you trust yourself to come up with the right diagnosis?
1: Well, you know the problem is i mean so we treated her fortunately you know somebody like her her she responded very quickly to antibiotics and she got well right away and we asked the psychiatrist to come and see her but of course and this is the nature of that particular disease she denied ever doing anything of the sort and we did some digging into her background there were lots of other things about her that didn't quite make sense for instance you know she told us what her name was and where she got where she had been hospitalized before and when we contacted that hospital they didn't have a patient of that name so she said oh that's right i changed my name because my boyfriend was stalking me and so we used her new name or her other name and they didn't have that patient either her blood vessel like her when when we tried to put in an iv her all of her peripheral veins were completely blown as if she'd had many many ivs um, so there were a lot of things that suggested that she was not your usual patient. This was unbelievable. And she left, uh, we discharged her when she was better. She left absolutely affirming that this had ne- she, she had never done this to herself and that, that she was very hurt that we accused her of this. Um, and yet, you know, we did got a CAT scan to look for any evidence of any perforation. She didn't have one. She didn't have any evidence of that. So I think we were right. Um, And it's sad. I I don't, you know, you have a very, I think it's a pretty terrible comment on your life when you feel best when you're being cared for in the hospital. It's not a good, it's not a good, it's not a good message about your life outside the hospital.
0: In one of your early New York Times pieces, you wrote about your own efforts to find out the cause of your sister's death. And I understand she was an alcoholic. What was that journey like, and how did that change you as a doctor and a diagnostician?
1: People die in the hospital. You know, that's one of the bad things that happens in the hospital. And so everybody gets a lot of experience telling the next of kin about this terrible event. And so often people would say how how did they die and and it always seemed i mean you know if they got hit by a car that's one thing you know or shot you know then a perfectly healthy person suddenly dies i understand that but often these are people who had medical issues to begin with i mean that's why That's why, you know, that's why they're in the hospital. Um, And so I always thought it was sort of strange that this desire to know specifically exactly and often in ways that we couldn't possibly know what happened to bring this person over the, you know, to beyond what their body could tolerate so that they died. I thought it was odd. And then when my sister died, I had the exact same feeling. She was not a perfectly healthy individual. She liked to present herself that way, but you know, she had she was a smoker and she had very significant alcohol abuse problems and 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 consequences from that. Um, but I don't know when when I heard about how she died. She died sitting by the swimming pool with a beer and a pack of cigarettes next to her in the late morning. Um, but what was really strange is that her cell phone was right there next to her. And I thought, my God, what could kill you so fast that you don't even have a chance to pick up your phone and call for help? So I was obsessed with that, just like all these other patients who are patients' families had been. And um, it, taught me a lot about how how the needs of the people who care are not necessarily reasonable. Certainly knowing doesn't change the outcome. And yet, turns out that knowing is really important. And so it it changed me a lot, just in, in my attitude toward what patients wanted to know. You know, we use ourselves as a measure all the time, and that's great as long as we have something that we compare can compare to. But, you know, doctors, you know, we're legendary for using our own baselines, our own behavior as the quote-unquote normal baseline. So, you know, how do you know when a patient drinks too much? When they drink more than their doctor. That's a joke, right? But it, it's it's actually kind of true. We always, we often use ourselves as what is normal, and so if somebody reacts in, what, in a way that you would, wouldn't, wouldn't predict yourself to react, you think that's abnormal. So I learned that their reaction was not abnormal, but extremely normal, and it, it was humbling to be reminded or shown that using myself as the measure isn't going to be 100% accurate
0: or even close. How did your column turn into a Netflix series?
1: Uh, A producer in New York named Scott Rudin turned out to be a fan of my column. You know, I've written it since two thousand and two, so for a long, I've written it for a long time, and so he he contacted the New York Times uh, and said, "Let's make this into a TV show." He was not the first person to contact me about turning my column into a TV show. But the others who wanted to do it, wanted to do it in a way that was mm, boring, (laughs) had already been done. You know, the usual way people suggested taking my column and moving it to television would be to take my actual columns and do reenactments with the patients voiceovering them well first of all somebody had already done that uh without my help just completely independently because once you publish something it's out there for the world to use a show called mystery diagnosis and it was it was it was just fine you know i mean i didn't have anything to do with it except that i found these stories um and it was perfectly fine television, but not the kind of television that I thought was particularly interesting. And so, you know, all the other people who had contacted me wanted to do that. That was not interesting, not to me. And fortunately, not to any product, any broadcasters. Scott was interested in doing something different. And so, um, doing something different gave us permission to do something really different. And so we came up with the idea of crowdsourcing as not the way to make a diagnosis, but because just because it's on a list doesn't mean of a list of possibilities doesn't mean that it's the right answer. Um, but it, it's the beginning of looking for a diagnosis.
0: And of course, we we have to note here that Scott Rudin is the Scott Rudin, who's this extraordinarily successful producer. He's won 15 Tony Awards on Broadway and an Emmy and a Grammy and an Oscar to boot, kind of a rarity in the industry. So so you were in pretty good hands. And uh, I, I binge watched the series last week. And, and initially, I was a little bit skeptical, I guess, on how this whole crowdsourcing experience would be both for the patients and for the doctors who are treating them. But about a couple of episodes in, I started to see the incredible power behind what you were trying to do, which in your own words was trying to expand the size of the room in which these diagnoses take place. And talk a little bit about that, uh, because most people think of doctors making individual diagnoses, but actually often you say it's a collective process, and that's where sometimes the best diagnoses occur.
1: Right. Well, you know, any doctor, any honest doctor, will tell you that when they come up against something that they haven't seen before or they're not certain about, they will always turn to what I call, and what many people call, the smartest doctor in the room. So we all have in our heads the list of people who we know to be outstanding diagnosticians. And if you have any brains at all, you will try to become friends with them (laughs) so that you can pick up the phone when you see something you don't understand and say, hey, Andre, do you have a few minutes to talk to me about this interesting case? Um, You know, and even when you don't do that, even when you see something that's more ordinary, but you're just not sure, you always turn to the other doctors around you and go, what do you do when you see something like this? So informally getting a second opinion is standard practice for doctors, but you're sort of limited by who those doctors are. Um, You know, I mean, who you have access to. And I thought crowdsourcing would allow us to have really the widest possible uh, reach. Also, I thought it would give us an opportunity to let people besides doctors weigh in. You know, there's lots of ways to know things. One of the, some of the earliest research in diagnosis showed that the person most likely to make a difficult diagnosis is the person who's seen it before. Well, it's not only doctors who have seen it, whatever it is before, you know, the patients themselves, um, their family, other caregivers, you know, there are lots of kinds of people who have seen this before. Plus, you know, I think uh, nowadays, patients are pretty good, some of them anyway, at Googling their own symptoms. And so I was interested in hearing from as wide an audience as possible. You know, one of the columns that I wrote for five or six years called Think Like a Doctor did this, did something like this. We used, I used solved cases, and I would present them as if they were a mystery, right up to the point before the doctor made the diagnosis, and I would stop and say, what do you think is going on? And so these were long columns. I, I embedded medical records,
0: de-identified,
1: of course, and, and people would go through them. And it was really
0: amazing. You've also gotten some criticism for taking this approach of global crowdsourcing, You know, in essence, allowing not just doctors, but other lay people to speculate on what these uh, conditions might be. Uh, what do you think of those criticisms?
1: I don't know why people would be against getting as much data as possible. Just because somebody suggests something, it doesn't mean that I or the doctor or the patient have to follow it. And I think acknowledging that there are different types of knowledge and different levels of understanding. that's what we're doing with this crowdsourcing. We're acknowledging that there are different ways to know the same kind of information. So, I I think one of the reasons that people criticize that is that they think it devalues what the doctor does. I disagree. You know, it's the doctor, you can make a suggestion and patients often do. You know, patients often say, "I think I have X, Y, or Z." And you can either agree with them or disagree with them, but you listen to them and hear what they have to say, because it might tell you something about who they are and how they understand the world. But I don't think there's any it's any different to open this up broadly. You know, it seems I don't know, it seems like an empowering thing for to give patients and other and family the opportunity to exhibit their very real knowledge. On a, t- on a topic. So I, I I understand that it's new and different, and people don't like new and different, or some people don't like new and different. But I think it's an experiment worth trying. Now, what I don't think is I don't think that crowdsourcing like this, global cloud, crowdsourcing, is going to be the way people make diagnoses. To me, it was more of a metaphor than an actual practice. I think it would be very hard to implement something like this on a regular basis to use routinely with patients. I mean, we all do it in our own way. One of the people that I wrote about, this marvelous doctor in Minnesota, would have what he called diagnostic flash mobs. So when he had a, an interesting or difficult patient coming to see him to get a diagnosis, he would send out an email to, you know, his 50 or so colleagues and say, Thursday at four or whatever, I'm going to present this patient. I would love to get your input. And, you know, whoever was free then, who was interested, would come and they would walk through, talk through, think through a patient as they presented. So, you know, we use this in various versions. I think people are just upset that I invited patients in to the conversation as well.
0: I watched the series last week and I was so, um, it's it's pretty nerve wracking to watch because some of these stories are not only heart wrenching, but you're in the room with these patients as they're having these very rare disorders you know you have someone like angel who at age 23 has such extreme muscle pain that she can't move or sadie at age seven who has this facing this devastating brain procedure for her frequent seizures which might involve losing half her brain or willie at age 56 who's like literally losing his memory day by day or Kamaya at age six who has seizures that make her go limp like up to 300 times a day. You know, these are just some of the examples. And what I felt like was if, if you're an average patient, just, let's just call it that for a minute, who has pretty much one of these, we know so much about medicine. And if you have one of those conditions that known to doctors, uh, then you're in pretty good shape. But if you have one of these rare disorders then good luck to you because some of these patients have been battling these extraordinarily difficult conditions for almost more than a decade in some cases. Right. I mean,
1: I think it is hard to watch it. You can only imagine how hard it must be to live it. Um, And I, you know, because I write, because I've written this column for the New York Times, I've gotten letters, you know, usually I get five or ten a week. Recently, I've gotten a lot more, but of people who are so frustrated for one, you know, because they have symptoms that people have not been able, the doctors they've gone to see have not been able to diagnose, or I think just as commonly, people have gotten a diagnosis, but they don't either. They don't like the diagnosis, or they don't believe the diagnosis. I mean, Lachey is a perfect example of that. you know, she was somebody, a young woman who developed this uh, problem, which she describes as vomiting. But if you see it, you can see that it's not really vomiting. It's regurgitation. So she, she developed this after having uh, a dia, you know, an infectious diarrheal infection um, f- when she was traveling. So she had this diarrheal disease. It lasted, you know, three or four days. And then after that, she developed this very strange symptom of regurgitating everything she ate or drank. It was quite, it's quite unusual. Here's what you need to know is actually having a diarrheal illness or any kind of GI, viral GI illness can change the way your body's GI system works. That happens up to 25% of the time. So they don't all get what she had, this regurgitation, but they all had something. But because of the way it was presented to her dismissively as if she were in charge of it as if she was doing it to herself she refused to accept the diagnosis and so did her family so i would get a lot of these different kinds these emails of people who either don't have a diagnosis or don't like the diagnosis or don't accept the diagnosis and the diagnosis isn't always right so sometimes it's right to to do it, so I knew that there was a need to have this addressed in some way, and I, I feel like the show allowed us to talk about some of those difficult diagnostic dilemmas and what happens to those people. I think it's a very lonely feeling. People would all often write to me and say, you know, that how isolated they feel, like how alone. All the from their perspective, all of their friends go see a doctor, the doctor says, oh, you have this, and gives them a pill, and then they're fine. That's the perception. When you're different, you feel alone.
0: That was that was one of the unexpected benefits that I found was so touching in the series was this release from the sense of isolation and this knowledge that all of a sudden they had a global community, someone they felt actually cared for them. And in, and a couple of them, one of them actually traveled uh Kamaya and her family actually traveled, and her mom actually traveled halfway around the world to meet another 12-year-old boy just to see what his life was like. And did you ever anticipate the depth of the emotional bonding and comfort that would come from this series?
1: No, I mean, and really, you know, that that one in particular, that episode in particular, changed. I mean, it changed our sense of what we were doing because when we started filming Kamaya she still didn't have the diagnosis. And so we, were, we knew that she'd been to see the NIH and the NIH hadn't been able to do anything. And so we were going to see if the crowd could provide her an answer. But actually the NIH had come up with something. They had, I don't know, it, it, there was a delay in them letting her know. And so what, what Kamaya's mom found out is that Kamaya, her, her beautiful baby, had this extremely rare genetic abnormality. And so we decided, uh, Kamiya's mom, we said, you know, what can we do now? Now that you have an answer, what can we do? And she said, I want a village. Everyone says, you know, Hillary Clinton says, it takes a village to raise a child. I don't have that village. Everybody looks at my child like she's odd, and she is. I need my own village. And so we, we put her case out there. And asked for people who knew something like this to con- you know to contact us and let us create a community for for her. And that's what we did. And so the child she went to visit in Denmark had not only the same genetic abnormality that she had, but the same presentation. And so really, there are only two or three people in the world that we were able to find, or that the NIH was able to find um, with a similar Presentation. And so she went to see, you know, a third of her community by going to visit this boy.
0: And what was interesting about that uh, is that she was able to see, and her mother was able to see how the disease progresses. For instance, in the boy, Altus who was 12, there were fewer seizures, but they could last as long as five minutes. Whereas with Kamaya, in, in the state that she's in now, they last a few seconds. And so at one point, her it makes her mother stop and sort of take stock of the situation and say, you know, five minutes, that is a very, very long time. But it also helps patients like that and their families plan for the future, right, to know what's coming down the pike, uh, especially in these rare disorders. Right.
1: And Kamaya's mom was very concerned about that. Like, what does the future hold? I mean, and when she saw these episodes, they scared her you know you could hear Kamaya breathing but you know her thought is if everything's losing strength is she going to keep breathing is her heart going to keep beating i mean is she going to die when she has one of these episodes where she just goes limp is everything going to stop working and i think it was reassuring to her in some ways to see that there were children who lived well beyond you know Kamaya was 6 uh the young boy was 12. So going to live at least that long. And I think it's important to know what the future holds. That's what that's one of the important purposes of getting a diagnosis, is to understand what the future holds.
0: I just want to stay with Kamaya for a minute for one last question, because it was such a, an extraordinary case. Because it wasn't just her family suddenly, she and her family feeling connected by understanding there were other people out there. But I realized often it's scientists who are working often for decades on these problems without knowing, and they're per- working on it from an academic and clinical perspective without understanding that there are actually patients out there who could benefit from this rare disease. And I think it was in this case where you saw Dr. Andrea Meredith of Meredith Labs, who actually bursts into tears when she realizes, wow, there's someone I can actually help. I've spent my entire career on this very narrow scientific research on this very rare disorder, and there's actually an outcome that could be positive
1: yeah that was that was amazing um you know uh to see to to find out i mean no one certainly nobody on my team expected that we would find someone who was doing this exact research i mean that was amazing that was well beyond anything we had hoped for, but I think it you know it's a source of hope and and uh You know, it might not, as her mom says, it might not help Kamaya, but it's good to know that it might help somebody in the future. might help Kamaya. We hope it helps Kamaya, but she accepts that it might not.
0: You also saw the darker, what you call the darker side of crowdsourcing in the case of that teenage patient, Lachey, who was uh, the crowd diagnosed with potentially having that regurgitation syndrome, and some of the comments that were coming in were very negative because often, as you said, with teenage girls particularly, these types of conditions and problems are associated with bulimia and things like that. And you kind of saw the darkness of some of those comments coming in. Well, I I actually learned a
1: lot from Lachey's case. First of all, you know, I thought, well, maybe this is, maybe bulimia could could present this way and I got so many emails that said are you kidding nobody who has bulimia goes to the emergency room don't be ridiculous and I thought oh yeah that's probably true um so and why I don't know why she got such a rude uh, reaction from so many people I mean I guess because she looks you know she's a beautiful girl she looks when she's not you know when she's not acutely suffering she looks like she's fine um i don't know why that makes people crazier than uh (laughs) somebody else but it clearly did and there was so much hostility directed at her i i it it was shocking to me that uh she was treated so badly um But that was a small minority of the responses. Most of the responses were very kind and thoughtful and caring and concerned. Um, That it was even a small percentage was shocking and kind of upsetting. But really, the vast majority of people who responded to her, responded to her suffering and accepted that she was suffering. Many people who had what she was diagnosed with rumination syndrome reached out and uh told you know described their own journey of accepting this diagnosis which is always difficult and uh the treatment which is not pleasant at all um but you know she got a lot of support from that
0: you you talk a lot in the in the series about uh the lack of salesmanship, for lack of a better word, that in how doctors break bad news to patients. And and you told me that you had a similar uh, experience with your dad when he found out about your mom's health and, and how that news was broken to him. Can you talk briefly about that?
1: Yes. Um, so my mother, one Christmas, developed a really bad, cold or cough. I mean, she was a smoker, so she got this really bad cough. And when I left her, you know, a couple of days after Christmas, she looked, she looked just awful, but she didn't want to go to the doctor. And um, she certainly did not want to go to the hospital. But on New Year's Eve, my father was finally able to convince her that she needed to go to the hospital. Um, She was quite sick. He had to help her into the car and help her into the emergency room. And, um, you know, she was taken in right away. And they said, you know, we're going to get her hooked up to IVs and get her in a gown, and then we'll come and get you when she's ready. And um, my father was waiting in the waiting room. And after a, a surprisingly long period of time, the doctor came out and said, I'm sorry, she's gone. And my father looked at him and said, oh, don't be ridiculous. Where could she go? I have the car keys. And the doctor, at a loss for what to say next, just repeated, she's gone. Um, he couldn't bring himself to say the word died or dead or even passed away. Gone was all he could say. And it took a a horrifyingly long time for my father to accept that because it wasn't even on his mind. We thought she had a cough or maybe pneumonia. They didn't think, there was no idea that she could be at death's door. So that was, you know, that taught me a lot about some of the important things in medicine. And one of the important things in medicine perhaps one of the most important things in medicine is to be able to communicate clearly and honestly and at a level that people understand you. Um, I think that we don't, we didn't used to teach that at all. I think we we have started teaching it, Um, but let me just say most doctors out in the world have either learned it on their own or happen to be gifted with this or just continue to be terrible. At communication, and that's terrible. You know, what's the good of knowing something about how somebody's body works if you can't tell them what it is and how they can fix it?
0: Well, Dr. Sanders, it's been so amazing to have this conversation after all these years of reading your columns. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. This has really been such a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Dr. Lisa Sanders is Associate Professor of Internal Medicine and Education at the Yale School of Medicine. She writes the Diagnosis column and Think Like a Doctor Well blog column in the New York Times. And if you haven't already checked out her Netflix New York Times series, Diagnosis, I highly recommend it. It's an incredibly thought-provoking look at the benefits and perils of crowdsourcing when making diagnoses. Thank you for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Core, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.